Okay, this week we have the privilege of studying Parshas Tetzaveh, page 464-465 in the Stone Chumash. Parshas Tetzaveh, of course, continues the theme we began last week, which is the Mishkan. I mentioned last week, we are somewhat abruptly introduced to the Mishkan. There's no segue, there's no introduction, there's no context which is provided. We kind of go from Harsinai, Matan Torah, Nasa, Vinishma at the end of Mishpatim, right headfirst into the Mishkan, the dimensions of the Mishkan, the Kalim last week, and this week the focus and the emphasis on the Big Day Kahuna, the clothing, the garments, the uniform of the uh, priests, of the Kohanim, in, and in particular of the Kohen Gadol, of the High Priest, as is our practice. Let's review the parasha quickly, an overview, and then we'll delve into the Psukim that we're going to analyze together today. The parsha begins with a commandment, not of the big day kahuna yet, but to take pure olive oil, a reminder of the obligation of the lighting of the uh, of the ner tamid, of the perpetual candle that remains lit. Perpetual is relative because tamid Rashi already points out means at night. But the uh, the role of uh, the kohen was to light the uh, the candle. And uh, interesting, why does it say lahalos ner tamid? It should say, Lehadlik ner tamid. One is madlik, one lights a candle. What do you mean, Lehaalos? What is the difference between Lehadlik and Lehaalos? Lehaalos means to bring up. Lehaalos means to raise. What do you mean you raise a flame as opposed to ignite or to light a flame? That's not our... We're not going to study this today, so I'll leave you that question. You could look into it. But anyway, then we get into the Kohanim and their garments. The uh, Kohanim are described uh, by name. They are Aaron and his sons. Namely, Aaron, Nadav, and Aviyu, Elazar, and Itamar, sons of Aaron, who are the designated Kohanim. The Asisa Big Day Kodesh Laron Achicha, Moshe is instructed. Of course, by the way, how many times does Moshe's name appear in our parsha? None. 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 The tradition is that this is the only parsha uh, in which Moshe's name does not appear after he arrives on the scene. The truth is that that's not accurate. There are other parshas that Moshe's name does not appear, but that's the tradition anyway, Tetzaveh. Most assume that it's a response to really next week's parsha. After the Chet Egel, the sin of the golden calf, Moshe says, forgive the people, if not, I want you to erase my name. God says, okay, you're such a tough guy, erase your name, no problem, parshas Tetzaveh, no Moshe Rabbeinu's name. Another association which is given is that tomorrow, tonight and tomorrow, are Zion Adar, the day of Moshe Rabbeinu's both birth and death, his Yeretzite. So we, it usually falls in the parsha of um, in the parsha of Tetzave. So Moshe's Yeretzite, his absence is recalled by the lack of mention of his name in Parsha's Tetzave. So anyway, Viata, we have all these pronouns: Viata, Viata, and you and you. It's talking to Moshe, but his name never appears. So Viata. The uh, Asisa Big Day Kodesh make fashion holy garments for your brother, and what is their purpose? Lechavod ulisif aris for glory and for splendor. Lechavod for glory and for splendor of whom we discussed this last year. This is Farno's others. Is it God's glory? Is it the glory of the coin? What is the purpose of this uniform? Does the uniform bring glory to the position to the coin? Does it bring glory to the Almighty? It's a very powerful image. This is the notion that you know the idea of the clothing making the man or the woman. What we wear has a heavy influence on who we are and how we behave. Someone who's in the military will describe, or somebody who's in law enforcement will describe, a different feeling overcomes them when they put on the uniform. They stand for something else. Interestingly, who paid for the uniforms of the Kohanim? We did. It came from the communal funds. So when the Kohen would don the uniform, they would be wearing something that was representative of everybody. They understood. It's kind of like our tax dollars pay for the police or the fire department's uniform. When they put it on, they understand that they are servants of the people. They represent the people. They're on behalf of our ambassadors of the people. The uniform of the Kohen was not allowed to have any barrier. There couldn't be a chatzitza. There couldn't be anything between their flesh, their skin, and the uniform. Even a bandage, a band-aid, there couldn't be anything. When they wore that uniform, it was part of their very being, it was part of who they are. They animated the clothing, the garment. Their being animated that garment, gave it life, um, brought it to life. So the Kohen Gadol and the Kohanim wore a garment. It distinguished, you have to understand, it, it changes your attitude. You know, I'll give you an example. When I'm on vacation all summer long, I don't wear a tie or a suit. I'm still, you know 
stress, my, my daughter would say, why can't you be more like Rabbi Brody? Why do you have to always look like a rabbi? One of my daughters always tells me. But uh, I'm not wearing a suit. The day I come back to shul and come back to work and I put on that suit and I put on this choker around my neck, I feel like, oh, I'm back in uniform. <laughs> Bring it on, I'm back to being the rabbi. When a person wears a uniform, it has an impact on how we feel. If you dress formally, you feel formal. If you're wearing your, your old sweatpants, you feel like you're Pesach cleaning. You know, you pay, what you wear has a big impact on, on how you feel. And that was the purpose of the Big Day Kahuna. L'chavoto l'sifaras, first of all, it, it, it promoted a sense of, of dignity. It promoted a sense of mission among the Kohanim themselves. They understood that they are engaged in a holy activity. They're not wearing the same thing. They understood that they represented the people who paid for the uniform that they wear with pride. It brought glory to God because a person looked at a coin or a coin gadol and they saw the dignity, the class, they saw the, the, the uniform. These were the soldiers of Hashem. It brought glory to Hashem. In fact, I think we talked about this last week, but this is what the tachrichim, the shrouds that we get buried in, are modeled after the, co- the clothing of the coin gadol. Literally, the mitznefes, the, the me'il, it's literally modeled after. When we, anyone who has the privilege of serving on the Hebra Kadisha, and if you do, we honor you tomorrow night at Zion Adar, at our Zion Adar dinner, if, if you, you understand that you know, the body comes in, often with bandages, often with, with blemishes, and with wounds, and with tubes, and, and you know, when that body comes in, if it's been in a, in a hospice, or the hospital, or whatever the situation may be, the body can appear soiled. And by the time the Hebra Kadisha is done with their work, of applying amazing care and concern and sensitivity and love and dignity, that body is now clean and hair combed and ears cleaned and nails cleaned, every every inch of that body. And the body is dressed in the shrouds which resemble you literally, that body is transformed to when you put them in the in the coffin, it's as if you are burying the Kohen Gadol, the high priest on Yom Kippur. It's a very powerful thing. Is that true? Okay. Casket. Aron. We'll call it the Aron. The Ark. The Jewish terminology. So when we, uh, by the time that we uh, are finished with our work, that uh, individual literally resembles the high priest. Very, very powerful. So that's the purpose of this uniform. That's all by way of introduction. Just hold, hold your questions if you don't mind till the end. And then, of course, the parsha begins to get into them. We have the ephod. Uh, the ephod is, is kind of, Rashi describes it as an apron. Women would wear it when they'd ride horses. But it's kind of an apron that begins below the waist but has straps that come up over the back and connect from over the back to the choshen, to the breastplate, and they hold it in place. But that is, underneath that, uh, first is the ksonas, the tunic, which is kind of a long undershirt, which is woven. On top of that is the me'il, which is the robe. That's what we're going to focus on. So, and these are the eight garments. The Kohen Gadol, the high priest, wore eight garments, except for Yom Kippur, where he wore, when he went to the Holy of Holies, the Kodesh HaKadoshim, then he wore only four garments. The four garments that the Kohen Hedyot, that the, the, every Kohen wore, except they were made of all white. They were white garments. Um, during the rest of the year, the high priest wore eight garments. So he wore the tunic, the ksonas, like the long undershirt, the me'il, the robe on top of it, the ephod, this apron, which combined with the choshen, the breastplate, on top of that. And each of them, you know, the, the Torah describes here in detail how they were woven, seven strands woven, and then the four of the seven woven to create one thread, which when it was woven into the garment, you understand the level of craftsmanship. Rashi describes, the reason it's called Masech Hoshev, it's described as, as Masech uh, Hoshev um, is, is the work of craftsmanship. Choshev is intelligence. Why? Because they, they were able to, this is without computers and technology and spreadsheets, they were able to create a thread of so many colors, and yet when woven together, revealed a pattern which was so magnificently complex. But not only complex, they were able to do a pattern, Rashi on Parsha's Truma, last week's Parsha describes this, that when you, when, I don't know if anyone here does needlepoint, I don't appreciate this, if you do needlepoint, you can appreciate it probably even more. They were able to weave a pattern such that the image on either side was different, not the same. That when you'd look on either side of the product, the finished product, the pattern was different, not the same. That was the level of craftsmanship and artisanship with which they, they wove. Um, the Torah continues uh, and describes the headplate, the tzitz, hazahav, it said kodesh, kodesh l'ashem. Was it on one line? Was it on two lines? There's a great Gemara. 
Or one of the uh, great rabbis, one of the Tanaim says, they're having a debate. Kodesh Lashem, was it on one line? Was it on two lines? So one of the great rabbis says, I was in Rome. I was in the Vatican. And I saw it. And it, and, and it was on two lines and that's the authoritative position. There's no reason to have a debate. I actually saw it. We discussed this when we talked about the garments having been taken after the destruction of the Second Temple when the Romans uh, tragically pillaged our Holy Temple and they took the uh, sacred vessels which has been memorialized on the Arch of Titus. In fact, the whole image of the menorah, if you compare it to the way it is in the Arch of Titus, to the psukim of last week's Parsha, we discussed this then. So, Kodesh uh, Lashem, was it on one line, was it on two lines? He says, I saw it. I saw it. Checkmate. I saw it and this is how it appeared. So you see that there's a tradition that it's in, uh, in the Vatican in Rome. Um, then you have the garments of the ordinary Kohanim who wore four garments, not eight. We have the ritual of the inauguration of the Kohanim, of uh, how that takes place, the different, um, the different sacrifices they brought. And then towards the end of the Parsha, we have the Tamid offering. We have a Medrash which is quoted. Nobody has ever actually identified where the Medrash is. But later authorities make reference to a Medrash. So we're not sure it ever really existed, but we can call it a Medrash where there was a debate among three great rabbis. What is the most important verse in the Torah? What's the motto of the Jewish people? What's our bumper sticker? One, not surprisingly, says, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The unity of God's existence, the statement of Jewish philosophy, theology, we don't believe in, in uh, multiple deities, in paganism, we believe in one God, everything traces itself back to one source, like a prism, one ray of light comes in, but multiple colors come out, we experience God, the many different colors, but there's one ray of light, God is one, there's a unity of God's existence. Okay, that makes sense, that was one nomination. A second candidate was, Love your neighbor as yourself, after all, says, that is the principle of Torah, that is the motto of the Jewish people. Love your neighbor as yourself, God, you can't have a relationship with God before you show love to His children. Okay, that also makes sense. And the third opinion was, the end of this week's Pasha. That two sheep. One sheep you offer in the morning and one sheep you offer every day as a sacrifice in the afternoon. Are you kidding me? That's the third nominee. That Pasuk should be the motto of the Jewish people. One sheep you slaughter in the morning and one sheep you slaughter in the afternoon. That belongs up there with the unity of God's existence and love your neighbor as yourself. Are you kidding me? So I'll leave that also as a question we can address another time. It's quoted um, by a number of later authorities. At, oh, where's the Pasuk? That Pasuk is chapter 29, verse 38. Yeah. And then, the, then it again begins with the... Uh, it, I'm sorry, the Parsha ends with the Mizbeach HaKetoros, the altar that they would offer the incense upon. And of course, you can't help but be puzzled with another question, which is, what is it doing at the end of this Parsha? Last week we talked about the Shulchan and the Yaron and the... Last week we had all the utensils of the, of the Mishkan. Why was this one, why did this one remain? What is it doing here at the end of Pasha's Tetzava, which tells me about, focuses on the Kohanim, their garments, their inauguration, their sacrifices. This should have been listed among all of the utensils. What's it doing here? Yet another question I leave you for another time. So let's get into what I want to look at this week's Pasha. And that is Shlishi, which is chapter 28, verse 31. Perch of Ches, Pasuk Lamed Aleph. It is in the stone Chumash on page 470. Page 470 in the stone Chumash. Everybody have me? Fantastic. Page 470. Page 470. Chapter 28, verse 31. Shlishi. Says the Torah. Now the Torah is describing, I mentioned in the overview... The Kohen Gadol had eight garments, on Yom, uh, eight garments throughout the year, four on Yom Kippur when he entered the Kodesh HaKadoshim. So he had, um, underneath he wore this kind of long undershirt, the Ksonas. On top of that he had the Me'il. So that's what we're up to. V'yasisa es Me'il ha'ifod kalil t'cheles. The Kohen Gadol would put on the robe of the ephod, which was made entirely kalil, it was entirely t'cheles. T'cheles, like we described, turquoise, comes from that something miraculous, whatever the snail is called. It's been rediscovered today. Um, so turquoise, it was made of this special turquoise wool. 
Safa oreg, lo The opening, the neckline of the of this robe, which was not a V-neck. It was a crew neck, it was circular. The opening was folded over within it and stitched. In other words, there was a reinforcement, a hem, a reinforcement around the border. It was all around of weaver's work, like the opening of a coat of mail. Kefi sachra, yelo lo yikareya. What's a coat of mail? What's a coat of mail? Like a coat of armor. The coat of armor around the neck was doubled over to give it extra strength there. Why? So that if they were slashed, it wouldn't tear open. Because then you'd be exposed and vulnerable. So similarly, this robe of the Kohen had a... It was doubled over. It was a hem. It was uh, doubled over so that it was reinforced. Uh, such that it would not tear. Lo yi kareya. You could not allow it. It must not be torn. It had on its hem, meaning the bottom of the robe, which stretched all the way down towards the ground. There were pomegranates that were made of turquoise, of tchelas, purple and scarlet wool on the hem all around. And there were gold bells between them. So the hemline of this robe was alternating little pomegranates made of tcheles, and alternating between them golden bells with a ringer inside. Right? The next pasuk. Pa'amon zahav v'rimon, pa'amon zahav v'rimon. A gold bell, then a pomegranate, a gold bell and a pomegranate. All al shulei hami'il saviv, on the hem of this robe, all going around. V'haya al aharon l'shares. This robe would be worn by Aaron, it would be on Aaron in order to govern, in order to be doing his service in the Mishkan. V'nishma kolo And you would hear kolo. Translate kolo. Its voice or his voice? So the sound, its sound, let's see, Art Scroll translated as its sound shall be heard when he enters the sanctuary before Hashem and when he leaves so that he shall not die. Now, obviously, I just hinted to, we'll get back to, Mishma Kolo, whose voice? Aaron's voice? The voice of the bells? The sound of the bells, Aaron's voice. What's going on here? Okay, so that's. That's the unit that we're going to look at here. The description of the me'il, the robe, the description of from the head to the toe, right? The, the neckline had reinforced. The hem was an alternating bells and pomegranate. Um, and the purpose of the bells was to make a sound when he would enter and when he would leave. Let's analyze and take a look. Let me just tell you something fascinating. In September of last year, an incredible discovery was made by archaeologists. I might have described to you it's still not open to the public. I just found out uh, last week. But underneath, if you, who's been to Ir David? So if you've been to Ir David, you know that south of, of the old city, outside the current wall, what we call the wall of the old city, which is really relatively new um, in terms of its dating, but there's Ir David, where David HaMelech lived. David HaMelech's palace was where David HaMelech, when he made Yerushalayim, the capital of the Jewish people. Ir David has been explored for, uh, for many years already. And we know at the base of Ir David, all the way down, you have the uh, Shiloh, you have this uh, water, which is where we know they, they drew from. They discovered fairly recently the street that ran from the base of Ir David all the way up to the Temple Mount, which was the way that the people had access, how they would go with their animals for sacrifices and how they would go from the city, from the village, all the way up. That in itself is an incredible discovery. The, the main street, the main thoroughfare, how they would get up there. But then they discovered something even more incredible. Underneath the street, the street was constructed that it was kind of bow-shaped. And the water would be able to run off to the sides and underneath it. And underneath it, there was a sewer. There was a drain that would allow the water to run off and collect it and remove the water. They discovered accidentally this sewer that also runs underneath this main street all the way up to the, uh, all the, way up to the Temple Mount. Though the main street, they can't excavate all the way because there's buildings and city and Yerushalayim on top of it. But the sewer, they can. So they dug and dug and dug and dug and dug. And all the way from the base of Ir David, 
all the way to the bottom of the hill, south of the old city wall, you can now climb, you don't have to climb, you can walk through that tunnel, and you know where it exits? At the, at the Kotel Plaza, at the entrance to the Kotel Tunnel Tours. They're going to make it one contiguous route that you'll be able to go from the base of Ir David all the way through the Kotel Tunnel Tours, all the way to the northwest corner of the Kotel, of where the base of Har Habayis was. Now, here's what's unbelievable. So I, I happen to know the people, they were here last weekend um, as part of that Jewish Statesmanship Institute, or they were here two weekends ago. Um, Nachman Zolden, Nachman and Miriam Zolden, incredible couple. They're very big supporters of Yer David. So they arranged for, uh, I took one of our missions last year and then this past summer, my family we had access to go through this tunnel. What they found was that this tunnel, they found an incredible amount of pottery unbelievable amounts of pottery dating to the time of the second temple all broken shards everywhere so much so they said to us take as much as you want bring it home with you I have some of it here at home what, what was it from when they were fleeing the Romans during the time of the destruction of the second base on Mikdash one of the ways they ran out was through this sewage system they ran out through it so these jugs were probably carrying the food that they were using to sustain themselves as they were fleeing from the Romans in fact you can see inside the tunnel there are areas of ash or where there's black char on the walls which likely came from the burning of the base of Mikdash and from the Roman fires when they broke through the siege of Jerusalem. it's incredible there's so much more to describe about it I don't want to take up our time but I'll tell you this as they continued to excavate that tunnel that sewer system underneath the main road they found this past September, a gold bell with a loop on the end of it, which they believe belonged to the Kohen Gadol, to this robe, to the Me'il that we're learning about this morning. The, uh, the Antiquities Authority, the archaeologists, the professors who found it said the bell looks as if it was sewn on the garment worn by the Kohen Gadol at the time of the end, towards the end of the Second Temple period. Now, why was it, what was it doing there? They say it's likely that the Kohen Gadol this garment was for whatever reason passing them that street and the bell fell off and ran off into the sewer and then it was underneath and they found this actual bell so it's unbelievable it comes to life this uh, the me'il the the, the pa'amon v'rimon this pa'amon this bell there were stories all over the news uh, it was September of last year just a few months ago if you google it you'll, you'll, you'll find it so let's get to, let's start looking at the psukim says why is it called the Me'il Ha'ifod? Pasuk describes it as Vasisa, you should fashion, make the Me'il Ha'ifod, the robe of the Ephod. It comes to show you, the purpose of the robe was to serve the Ephod. What's the Ephod? The Ephod was worn on top of this, both on top of the, um, on top of the undership, undershirt, the Xonas, and the, um, and the Me'il. And the ephod was, was this woven, very technical uh, garment with the straps. That was the purpose of it. So, if you look at, uh, for example, um, look at the Rashbam, Shmuel ben Meir. Mi'il ha'ephod, shalovei shalov, it's ephod. Why is it called the mi'il ephod? Because you wore, up, you wore on top of it the ephod. That was the purpose of it. That's why you wore it. Ephod, you look at the Balatur in Pasuk Laman Aleph, he says, ephod is begamatria malach. The ephod is the same uh, numerical value as the word malach, an angel, because the Kohen Gadol, when he wore the ephod, looked angelic. So this me'il, the robe that was worn underneath the ephod, was called the me'il ha'ephod because it didn't have an independent value. The purpose of the robe was not for itself. Its purpose was to serve the ephod because it was the ephod that allowed the Kohen Gadol to look angelic. As the Balaturim says, the same gematria, shaya malubash kamalach, he was dressed like a angel. Look at the Kliyakar, source, uh, source, Pasuk Lamed Aleph, says the Kliyakar of Lunchitz, from Lemberg, the, the Kliyakar throughout his commentary on this parsha um, is referencing the Gemara. Gemara in Zvachim tells us each of the garments of the priests and the high priests corresponded with the ability to atone for a different pattern of poor behavior. We have different patterns of poor behavior. We make mistakes and bad judgment and so on. The different garments of the Kohen Gadol, the whole function of the Mishkan was a place of atonement. You made a mistake, you displayed poor judgment, you sought spiritual inspiration, you went to the Mishkan and that's where you found it. Right? That's the whole symbolism of the, of the sacrifices. 
Rav Hirsch describes so beautifully. You would sacrifice an animal. What was the idea? You're sacrificing the animal instinct inside you. And the symbolism of sprinkling the blood is our passion. And the flower offering is our most basic needs. And the, he goes through all of the symbolism. So too the garments of the priests and the high priests corresponded with different mistakes that we made. And the symbolism contained within those garments would inspire tshuva repentance and would achieve atonement. So look at the Kliyakar. He says, The me'il, this robe, what did it correspond with? What symbolism? What did it elicit that we would draw from and achieve atonement? Mechaper Allah if a person would gossip, the me'il would remind us of the mistake. So why was the robe made entirely of the turquoise color? What's the purpose of turquoise? So that should remind us of tzitzis. Tzitzis, we'll study in Parsha Shlach. The end of Parsha Shlach is the mitzvah of tzitzis. So tzitzis, we know we have all these threads of white. And then we have one thread that's made of turquoise. And the contrast of the blue and the white is supposed to remind us that, that the blue, the, the richness of the blue is similar to the blue of the ocean. And the blue of the ocean reminds us of the blue of the sky. And the blue of the sky, you look up, it reminds you of the heavenly court and the heavens. And the heavens remind us that there is there's a being, there's something greater than ourselves. There's a, a, an almighty who runs the world. So, and that was the purpose of tzitzis. When a, person, a man would look at his tzitzis and see that blue string, he would, it was like tying a string around your finger. It serves as a reminder, as a source of inspiration. So, so too over here, says the Kliyakar. A person would gossip, they would lose their way, they would lose their focus, they would lose their anchor of what's important in life, their compass. They would see the blue of the robe, an entire robe of this stark blue color, this rich blue color, turquoise color, would remind you of the ocean, and then the heavens, and then the heavenly court, and so on and so forth. So he says the following, how does the ocean cause you to, rem- to remember to stop speaking Lashon Hara? Why should this blue of the Me'il be a reminder not to gossip? He says, what's the problem of gossip? when we forget that there are boundaries to speech. When we think that we can say whatever we think, we can say whatever we feel, we can say whatever we feel like saying. There's no boundaries. Whatever comes to us, we say. No boundaries. The ocean is a place of boundaries. The ocean is surrounded by the beach, by the shore, that protects the land from the ocean, but gives it a sense of a boundary. There's a beautiful, I think it's Rabbeinu Bechaya who says, in fact, that's why a chuppah is called a chuppah. What's the root of the word chuppah that they get married under? Chof. What's a chof? The chof is the shore, the, the, the beach, the, uh, the shore. And he talks about the bridge of two separate things, but being together. It's a beautiful concept of what the, what the chuppah is really all about. So here the Kliyakar says, just like the ocean has boundaries, the ocean, the water can't go in any direction it pleases. But there are boundaries to the ocean. So too our speech has boundaries. We have a nose on, above our top lip, lip. We have a chin below our bottom lip. There are boundaries to speech. We can't simply say whatever we feel. And therefore when we saw the red, blue richness of the me'il, it would be a reminder not to speak Lashnara. So he says, just like the water doesn't go wherever it pleases, it never breaches the, the shore, except when there's a hurricane. Um, so, so too, we should not, our speech should not breach. And that's what the symbolism represents. And he continues by referencing Parsha Shlach when it comes to the Tcheles of Tzitzis, that it's supposed to fulfill a similar purpose. And it's a long Kliyakar, he goes on with this uh, thought, but the Kliyakar is explaining why was the Me'il made out of Tcheles. All of that is number one. Next. Consistent with that theme, what's the idea of the hem? What's the idea of doubling over the neckline to protect it from being torn? So look at the Balaturim. Safa yiyeh lepiv. 
piv meaning the opening of the robe had to have a safa, had to have a hem, a boundary. Why, says the Balaturim? Shamiil mechaper alashanara. Shimchat belashanara. Yas es safa lepiv. Sheimanu milashanara. Vyasa tshuva vyischaper lo. Just like there's a strong boundary around the opening of the robe, so too the opening of our body, our mouth, has to have a strong boundary, a strong hem, has to be reinforced to not speak lashanara. So again, it's the Gemara in Zvachim which says that the Me'il corresponds with Lashon Hara, not gossiping. And based on that symbolism, the Kliyakar explains the color. That's why it's a turquoise blue. And the Balaturim explains why the opening was doubled over and reinforced because the opening to us, our mouth, has to be reinforced to make sure that we don't speak out of turn, that we don't gossip, that we don't say things we shouldn't be saying. Okay. Um, it, uh, the, the collar is turned where? Pasuk says, Bisocho, right? Verse Lamed Beis. Pirosho Bisocho. The opening to the Me'il was doubled over inward and then sewn to create that reinforced stitch. Why Bisocho? Why not double it outwardly and then stitch it? You could create the reinforcement by doing it out and then having stitching, or by doing it in and then having stitching. Why do it inward? Look at this Rashbam, Rav Shmuel ben Meir. Ben Tziusolamala, one would uh, do it uh, inward. Why? Lahavdil ke'ein malbushim shel galachim. In order to distinguish the robe of the Kohen from the galachim. What are galachim? The priests. Now it's interesting, the Rashbam... The Rashbam lived at a time, of course, of Catholic priests. The Rashbam suffered at the hands of those priests. We discussed last week, we did the wine event, the wine from Spain and the history of the Jews of Spain, and I spoke about you know, the church and its hand and throughout uh, whether it was when, when Christians ruled Spain or without the Crusades, the first crusade, the second crusade, the Rashbam, Shmuel ben Meir, was Rashi's grandson, he suffered. So he, he certainly was, was familiar with the, the collar of a priest. But... Why would God design the robe that was instituted at the time of the Mishkan long before there were these Galachim? So maybe the Rashbam is superimposing his own experience onto that. Or he doesn't mean Galachim in the form of priests, of Christian priests. He means Avodazara. He means to distinguish the uniform of the high priest from other pagan uniforms that existed at the time. Therefore the collar was turned inward and not outward. I thought that was an interesting comment of the Rashbam. What's the purpose of doubling the collar over? Why does it need to be doubled over? So that lo yikareya, it may not be torn. It may not be torn. Look at Rashi. Kideshi lo yikareya o over balav. There is a biblical prohibition to actively, willingly, knowingly destroy, tear one of the priestly garments. Shizem minyan lav and shebetorah. It's one of the six hundred and thirteen commandments. V'chem lo yezach hachoshen v'chem lo yasur imenu anemar b'badei haaron. Similarly, when it comes to these other verses, a person is not, accidentally is accidentally, but a person is not allowed to purposefully tear or damage one of the big day kuna, one of the priestly garments. And this is learned from the verse lo yikareya. It may not be torn. Not only can it not passively be torn, but if you're not, if, if, if the reason you're creating this reinforcement is to protect from around the collar it being torn, then we extrapolate that you cannot tear it. In fact, if you look um, at the Sforno, Lo yikareya, lo yelo niftach It's not a v-neck, but rather it's a crew neck for this purpose. If it's a v-neck, it's much more vulnerable to being torn. Lo yikareya is mean not v-neck. Don't make it v-neck look like it's torn. The whole v-neck image, is, it looks like it's already an opening that's torn. So the Rashbam, the Svarno rather saying, Lo yikareya, that's the source of it being a ghoul, of it being a circular opening to the meal. I have in my Mikros I don't know if you have it, Likute biure hamitzvah mea Rambam, quoting from the Rambam. The Rambam in Hilchos Kloy Amiktish writes, Hakorea pia meil loke shenemar lo yikareya, vuadin lecho big dekuna shakorea derech hashchaso loke. One would get Malkus. You get lashes. 
One was punished. There were consequences. It's one of the lavin. One of the 613 commandments. You're not allowed to tear or damage any of the garments of the Kohanim. Now, next, on the hem of this meal, this robe, we learned that Rimonet Cheles Vargaman, the Solashani, were fashioned. Pomegranates, and it looked like pomegranates. It was a circle with something coming out the bottom. It looked like a pomegranate. Does so he have a picture here in the stone from Hey, where's the picture? Page 472. The bottom of page 470, you see alternating bells and turquoise uh, pomegranates. That's what went around the uh, bottom of, the, of the, the hem of the aphod. How many were there? Bells and pomegranates? Look at the Balaturim. Balaturim says, Rabbi Yaakov ben Asher, there were said, the Gemara Zvachim says there were 72, except for the poor Kohen Gadol whose bell fell off in the sewer underneath uh, the road from here, David. But there were 72 bells and pomegranates. Why 72? Corresponding with the 72 types of blemishes that the Kohen Gadol would inspect to label someone a mitzorah. We know that a person who had spiritual leprosy would be afflicted with a certain type of blemish. He had to go to the Kohen Gadol. Only the high priest could uh, diagnose that blemish and give him the status of a mitzorah. So there were 70 types of maros negayim, 70 types of these blemishes, corresponding with the so 72 types, which by the way also fits in with our image. Why did a person get saras? Lashanara. So, and what was the purpose of the me'il? To atone for Lashanara. So the Balaturim continues. Shamiel Machapar Lashanara, Vitzaraz Babav on Lashanara. So, so far we've seen three of the details of the me'il, of the robe, corresponding with its symbolism that when one, when one saw it, they were supposed to remember no Lashanara, Lashanara is bad, I need to do tshuva, I need to seek atonement for the Lashanara I may have spoken. So it was the Kliyakar telling us the turquoise color of the me'il evoked the memory of Lashanara. It was the opening of the... What was the second thing? No, the color was the first. <laughs> Having a brain freeze. The collar, why is the collar the second? Oh, the opening. Just like there's reinforcement around the opening of the garment, we need reinforcement around our opening, our lips, that we can't speak Lashanara. And the third thing now, the Balaturim, which is that there were 72 bells and pomegranates corresponding with the 70 types of blemishes to remind us of Lashanara. Just hold the questions till the end, if you don't mind, please. Continuing, the last thing I want to discuss. These bells would make a sound... Aaron had to be wearing it when he entered. And the purpose was, it or his voice was heard when he entered the Kodesh. That's true, by the way, except for Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, when he went into the Kodesh HaKadosh, he was not wearing this. So whatever reason we're about to say for the bells, it didn't apply to Yom Kippur. Now what do you mean, Velo Yamus? What does Veloya Mus mean? Says Rashi, Michla lava From when it says the negative, you can derive the positive. Im ye lo misa. If he had the bells and pomegranates on the bottom of his robe when he entered, then he didn't die. But if the high priest entered missing one of the garments, he received capital punishment. He received the death penalty. Why does it write it in the negative? That if he's wearing it, yamus, then he doesn't die. Says the Sif Sechachamim, quoting from the Minchas Yehuda. Because God wants the merit of the people. God does not want to predict or anticipate when we go wrong. God wants to assume and presume that everything will go right. So God doesn't write, and if he doesn't wear it, he dies. He writes, and when he wears it, he won't die. Why? This is the goodness of God. I'm sorry, quoting the Nachlas Yaakov. 
So Nachlas Yaakov says, we constantly find in the Torah the punishment giving not in the positive. If you do the wrong thing, you die, but rather in the negative. As long as you do the right thing, you won't die. Why is it given it to us like that? To show us God's faith in us that God works off the assumption that we're going to do it the right way. It's a big lesson for parenting here. One should communicate to their children, not, and if you do the wrong thing, here's your punishment. Communicate to their children, I assume you do the right thing, and that's why you're going to be able to always have your cell phone and iTouch and iPod and laptop, and because I assume you're going to do everything right, and therefore you're going to have everything that you have and enjoy it. God bless. As opposed to saying to your children, and when you mess up, I'm taking away your whatever. I assume you're going to have great grades and you're going to enjoy all of the luxuries, the things that you're spoiled with. It's a big lesson. That's how Hashem relates to us. Hashem relates to us with faith in us that we're going to do it right and therefore expresses it, you won't die, as opposed to telling us, when you do it wrong, then you're going to die. The Yorachayim HaKadosh, Rav Chayim Ibn Atar, also says, If you didn't have the bells, then you would be liable to the death penalty. By the way, from Rashi, it sounds like this warning, that if you're missing something, you're going to die. What does it apply to the warning? Only the bells and pomegranates? Or all eight garments? From Rashi, he says, If you're missing any of the garments, then you're liable for death. Says the Rechaim, no. The Pasuk is not talking about missing the other garments. It's if you're missing these this Pasuk says the Archaim is telling us specifically if you're missing the bells, you're subject to death. Now, does he disagree when it comes to the law? Rashi says you get Malchus. Rashi says, I'm sorry, you're no, more, worse than Malchus. You get death if you enter while missing one of the garments. Does the Orachayim say you don't get death? Orachayim agrees you get death. Orachayim says, but we learned that from a Pasuk at the end of the list of all of the garments. Why is it telling us now, punked in the middle of the garments? A specific warning corresponding with the bells. So what's so special about these bells? Why is it going God they'll walk around? I mean, it's, it's annoying. He's going to jingle and, and every, every step he takes, every move he makes. What's so special about these bells that 72 bells and pomegranates alternating bottom of the robe, if he's missing, he's subject to death. And their purpose is, v'nishma kolo, that a sound or a voice is heard when entering the kodesh, when entering the sanctuary. What's special about them? What, what are they about? So there are many, many different opinions here. Who should we start with? We can read the Ramban. Let's look at the Ramban. There's a long Ramban here. The Ramban, like the Orachayim, disagrees with Rashi about whether this Pasuk is coming to warn if you're missing all eight garments or four garments or specifically the one. But in the middle of the Ramban, he says, Umasha Omar Lamala. You see where, that Ramban, where he says that? If you have the Ramban. It's the beginning of a new paragraph. It's about halfway through the Ramban on verse 35. Umasha Omar Lamala. Yeah? So it says the Ramban. V'nishma kolo b'vol ha-kodesh v'lo yamus hu al da'ati biur l'mitzvah sapa'amonim When it says that their sound will be heard when you enter, says the Ramban, it's telling us the reason, the purpose of the bells. Ki m'bnei she'ein behem tzorech b'levisha There's no functional reason you need it. You need to have reinforcement around the neck. It serves a function. You're wearing a robe, keeps you warm, protects your legs. There's a function. Bells on the bottom of your robe... There's no purpose, there's no pragmatic reason in terms of a garment. Nor does it appear as, as a you know, prestigious look. It's not that great kings and great dignitaries and great statesmen wear bells on the bottom of their clothing. So Ramban says there's no practical purpose for it. And it's not the dress of royalty. So what's the point? You're not allowed to enter the inner sanctuary of the king without what? 
without permission. Now, you can't get permission. God's not, you're not going to knock on God's door and God's going to say yes. So how do you symbolically get permission to enter? By knocking, by wearing bells. How do you knock when enter God's inner sanctuary? You knock through bells. How, per- how perfect the timing. Like Ahashverosh, right? Esther Amalka did not want to enter. She was fearful. If you don't have the king's invitation, or that is extending his Sharvit HaZahav, you're fearful to enter the inner sanctuary of the king. So says the Ramban, just like a human king, you can't enter without permission. So to the high priest, couldn't enter without permission. How do you knock on God's door? By wearing bells that ring. Nobody could be in there. The Kohen Gadol was alone, was isolated when he went to this intimate rendezvous with the Almighty. How did he alert people, everyone out, I'm about to enter? He wore the me'il. And when the bells would ring, everyone would scatter so that he would be alone. And you had the opposite, the inverse would occur when he would take leave. Again, he would leave with permission. The bells were the symbol of asking for permission to leave. And the sound of the bells, of the bells when he would exit would alert the other Kohanim, it's time you can come back. So the Ramban says, kind of gives two reasons. What are the two reasons for the bell? Functional. What the Pasuk says, says the Ramban. V'nishma kolo. The sound will be heard. And what benefit is there for the sound to be heard? One God it's courtesy. It's common courtesy. You don't just walk into a room. And the Gemara even records one of the great rabbis would knock on his own door before entering. Mm-hmm. Not just you knock on someone else's door before you go into their house. He would knock on his own door. Why? It's a display of courtesy. It's a display of modesty, of humility. You knock on a door before you enter. In fact, to the point that it's quoted in that Gemara, he would knock when he knew no one was home. The practice was to knock even when no one's home. It's just, it's, it's courtesy, it's dignified, the way that you enter a home. By the way, it's true and dignified, even your own home. Maybe your spouse is not dressed properly, is sitting in an awkward position, is doing... You, before you're going to enter somewhere, you alert someone that you're coming in. So it says the Ramban, reason number one for the bells is, it's common courtesy to the Almighty that you're about to enter His space. You let Him know you're coming. And reason number two was that the Kohen Gadol would enter, he'd be alone, so you'd let the other Kohanim know it's time for them to hit the road. When they, and also, say so, because the Pasuk says, say so. And when he would take leave, he would alert the Kohanim that they could now come back. Those are the two reasons of the, of the Ramban. The Chizkuni, the Chizkuni gives two different reasons. The Chizkuni says, we don't have it in our Makros Gedolos, Chizkuni says, first of all, it distinguished the Kohen Gadol from everyone else. How did the Kohen Gadol remember that he's just a step above, that he has greater responsibility, that he is distinct and distinguished from the others? These bells. When he would hear their sound, it would remind him, I'm different. And he would carry himself in an even more dignified way, and he would recognize the even greater responsibility that he had. Second thing that Chizkuni says is, it would alert everyone around that it was the time for the avoda. When they heard the bells ring, they knew the Kohen Gadol was doing the avoda. They knew it was time for the avoda, similar to the Ramban in terms of alerting the Kohenim. The Ksava Kabbalah of Mecklenburg says another reason, or similar to the Chizkuni, but he says the bells on the bottom of the robe of the Kohen Gadol were similar to the tzitzis that every man wore. Just like we have tzitzis that remind us of our awesome responsibility, remind us of our relationship with Hashem, remind us to do that which is right, the bells in the bottom of the me'il parallel the tzitzis on the corner uh, of the, or the tcheles on the corner of a pair of tzitzis. That also makes sense when you think that the me'il was tcheles and both correspond with Lashon Hara. So all of that makes sense. So these are all different reasons given for the sound. For the nishma kolo, you would hear the sound. If you look at the Balaturim, the Balaturim, Rav Yaakov ben Asher says, V'nishma, 
three psukim it's reminiscent of. Gimel b'mesorah. Three times we have a tradition that this word vinishma is used. Vinishma kolo b'voel kodesh our verse, that the bells will be heard, their sound, when entering the holy. Kol asher diber Hashem naseh vinishma. And the parshas mishpatim harsinai. Everything God asks of us, we will do and vinishma, we will listen. And the third time, vinishma pesgam melech comes from the book of Esther. V'hainu d'amrinu b'megillah. Amaraba, Mikra Megillah Vitalma Torah, Mikra Megillah Adif. If there's a conflict between learning Torah and hearing the Megillah, which one is more important? Megillah. By the way, some of the commentators ask, I don't understand. Isn't Megillah one of the 24 books of Tanakh? Aren't you fulfilling the mitzvah of Talmud Torah when you hear the Megillah also? So what do you mean? Mevatlin Talmud Torah, Mibnei Mikra Megillah. One should stop learning in order to go hear the Megillah. Isn't hearing the Megillah a form of learning? It's a great question. I'll give you the answer another time. So, I'll tell you, Rabbi Yosef gives an answer. Rabbi Yosef has a tiny little booklet. I forgot the name of it. Which he wrote about the ideas of learning. So he says, you see from there that when there are different levels of learning. And if you could be learning at a high level and you're choosing to learn at a low level, that's a form of Bittal Torah. So, you know, you're reading some, uh, you know, you're reading some easy book that's, that's served to you on a silver platter instead of toiling over learning Torah deeply and you have the capacity to, the skill set to, then that's a form of Bittal Torah. Hearing the Megillah read, it's a cute story, when you could be pouring over Gemara, that's a form of Bittal Torah. We do that Bittal Torah, hearing the Megillah takes precedence, but that too is a form of Bittal Torah. Mikra Megillah Vavoda, there's a conflict between hearing the Megillah or the Avoda of the Beis HaMikdash. Mikra Megillah Adif. So this word v'nishma appears in all three places to teach us hearing the Megillah takes precedence. So here we had an intersection between our Parsha, Zayin Adar Moshe Rabbeinu, tomorrow night, and Purim, which is coming up in Mirza Hashem next week. Have a fantastic... We didn't, we didn't address one question, by the way. Which was, given the reasons we spoke about... We, we didn't address five questions. But given the reason for the bells, why was it unnecessary on Yom Kippur? So Rabbeinu Bachya, that's why I have this Rabbeinu Bachya out. Rabbeinu Bachya says, he says, you need to knock, you need to knock to have the courtesy of entering when there's a formal relationship. But on Yom Kippur, when the Kohen Gadol feels a sense of intimacy and connection and love and embrace with Hashem, there's such a closeness, you don't even need to knock before you enter. And that's why they weren't worn on Yom Kippur. Yeah, exactly. All right, have a great Shabbos.